Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Point-of-care ultrasound use, or POCUS, in the emergency department has evolved over the last decade far past the basic FAST exam and into all sorts of new bedside applications. Today, we're talking about POCUS for retinal detachment. Now, past studies of bedside ultrasound for the detection of retinal detachment have reported very high specificity and sensitivities. And today's guest, Dr. Daniel Kim, sought to assess those numbers in a large heterogeneous group of emergency physicians. He's the lead author of an upcoming AEM article entitled, Test Characteristics of of Point-of-Care Ultrasound for the Diagnosis of Retinal Detachment in the Emergency Department. Dr. Kim is an emergency physician at Vancouver General Hospital and the Ultrasound Fellowship Director for the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia, and we are so happy to have you here with us today. Oh, good morning, Gita. Thanks for inviting me. So let's just start out with the basics of the paper. What did you set out to do? Well, to be honest, I don't really consider myself much of a researcher. I'm primarily a clinician and an ultrasound educator who dabbles in a bit of research on the side. So what really piqued my interest was a Vrabelic meta-analysis published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2015, where they reported 100% sensitivity of ocular ultrasound for retinal detachment. Hmm. So most point-of-care ultrasound applications in general, I think, are, are fairly specific, but they're not necessarily super sensitive. Like... Think fast, pneumothorax, echo for PE, for example. You know, if you see pathology, it's likely there, but a negative scan doesn't necessarily rule it out, right? So right. here's an application with supposedly 100% sensitivity. So I was really interested in this and wanted to kind of confirm if this was actually the case amongst the broad heterogeneous group of emergency physicians. So that's why we did it. We actually had pretty good buy-in from my group. I was, I was surprised it's always always hard to get people to change their practice or do new things. Um, we actually had 30 staff and residents who participated. Uh, fortunately, though, at the end of the day, we our sensitivity of 75% wasn't really close to the 100% published in the Vrabelic meta-analysis. Um, we had pretty good specificity at 94%. So how'd you go about the study? Can you tell us how it was structured? Yeah, so it was essentially a prospective observational descriptive study, really. Uh, what we did is we had clinicians, um, whenever they saw a patient with new flashes, new floaters, uh, new visual field cut, they would enroll the patient. They would essentially do their, their typical clinical assessment. And on top of that, they would also do ocular point-of-care ultrasound. At that point, they would decide, is this a retinal detachment or is this not a retinal detachment? And then they would send the patient on to get assessed by the ophthalmology resident on call who would refer all these patients to a retina specialist within one week. So essentially, the retina specialist assessment was the gold standard, and we were comparing how good the emergency physicians were with their ocular ultrasound uh, compared to the retina specialist. Okay, so what did you find? Um, So like I said, our... Sensitivity was 75% and our specificity was 94%. We had a total of 30 emergency physicians who enrolled a total of 115 patients. And at the end of the day, the retina specialist diagnosed retinal detachment in 16 cases. So it was about 14% of the patients we enrolled. Okay, so as you know, I normally work with the PGY4. 
on these podcasts. And you, Dr. Kim, you communicated with Dr. Gabe Heiderich, who's the PGY4 who was working with me this month, but unfortunately he could not do the interview with you today. And I'm saying that because this next question, uh, as an older attending, I think I know the answer, um, but he notes, it's interesting that trainees generally did better than attendings. Do you think that this population is at baseline more facile with ultrasound in general? And is this a testament to improvements in ultrasound education? Well, you know, I think it's a, a pretty good pickup. Our trainees perform better than our staff physicians did. Uh, like you said, I, I think it reflects a bit of a generational difference. Uh, the trainees are currently coming through. They're certainly more facile with technology. They're really part of that Xbox, PlayStation, video game generation that understands how physical movements with a controller really manipulate a video image that you're watching. You know, I, obviously, ultrasound education is improving, especially in emergency medicine residency programs. I kind of trained at a point in time where ultrasound was starting to become more popular and prevalent. Uh, but that really didn't happen until partway through my residency program. Mm. Um, it also seems to be starting earlier in medical education too, right? With medical student, ultrasound education. But mm. I don't think that necessarily had a specific uh, effect on our study because the first implementation of medical student ultrasound program in Canada wasn't until 2012. And we were enrolling patients in 2015 to 16. So I think that may have had a limited effect. But yeah, from teaching ultrasound courses, you, you always kind of get the sense that people who are younger seem to be able to pick up the uh, the skill set a little bit more easily. Right. And actually, interestingly, in your study, I think there were four false negatives and two of them had rated themselves as highly skilled, right, in ultrasound? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly why that happened. I don't know if there's a, a certain level of overconfidence there. Right, right. And you did you did an hour of training with everybody just to kind of get everybody up to speed and on the same page. But it's certainly possible that some people were more skilled than others and some people were doing more ocular ultrasounds than others. Um, but you did note that general trend that the people who enrolled more patients tended to do better. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, unfortunately, our numbers weren't really large enough to sort of make uh, really solid, robust uh, relationships between necessarily number of patients enrolled and, and, and certain ability to really do very well in terms of your test characteristics. But yeah, I mean, I think in general, it sort of makes sense that the more ultrasound you do, the better you're going to get at it. Well, it does certainly make sense. Okay, so here's Gabe's next question for you. All six false positives ended up having some alternative intraocular diagnosis, while half of the false negatives were diagnosed incorrectly with a different intraocular diagnosis. Do you think this means that we as emergency physicians are able to reliably tell normal from abnormal, but not much beyond that? And if this triggers an appropriate optho consult, is that good enough? Well, I mean, I guess that's the question at the end of the day. You know, anyone that comes in with new flashing lights, new floaters, new visual field cut, all of them probably need an ophthalmology assessment, right? Right. You know, I, I think that generally speaking, our data suggests that emergency physicians can look at the eye with ultrasound and we can correctly determine if the posterior chamber is sort of grossly normal versus abnormal. We might have some difficulty in distinguishing more subtle differences. Um yeah, I, I think these patients in general um, all need uh, assessment, though, by an ophthalmologist, because even if their symptoms are due to a posterior vitreous detachment, 
we know that PVDs put patients at risk for retinal detachment at maybe a rate of 14 to 15%, right? Mm -hmm. So I think they all need to be connected or hooked up to an ophthalmologist. Okay, then speaking of the ophthalmology consult, um, your patients in the study were all evaluated by the ophthalmology resident, but then again by a retinal specialist, correct? Yes. So the ophthalmology resident, it was at their discretion in terms of how urgent the assessment by the retina specialist was going to be, but all patients that we enrolled for this study got assessment by a retina specialist at the end of the day. We essentially wanted to improve on what previous studies had done because previous studies had had slightly variable gold standards in terms of saying gold standard is the ophthalmology resident assessment or the ophthalmology staff's assessment. So um, yeah, I think that was one way we were able to sort of improve in terms of this study in ensuring that every patient that we enrolled actually got assessment by a retina specialist. And if they missed that appointment, they were actually excluded from our final analysis. Um, so let's just talk about some of the limitations that you mentioned in the article. Gabe noted that they tend to inflate sensitivity and specificity. Do you think that the numbers in reality are lower? Some of our limitations certainly could have inflated our sensitivity and specificity, especially the fact that there were an academic program, we have residents. But you know, on the other hand, some of our limitations could have also had a negative impact on our sensitivity and specificity, right? Like if someone gets assessed in the emergency department, they don't see the retina specialist within a week, they theoretically could have had a PVD that could have progressed to retinal tear, could have developed into retinal attachment. So that could have decreased our test characteristics. And part of it, like we sort of talked about earlier with the one hour didactic teaching and one supervised scan, it's possible that just simply wasn't enough training for the average eMERGE doc, right? So that could have easily lowered our sensitivity specificity too. So it's hard to know how all these factors would have kind of balanced out these limitations at the end of the day. So I think the results that we got are somewhat reasonable and reflective of a real life, real world population of emergency physicians. So on a similar note, the sensitivity in your study was remarkably lower than what has been published in the literature so far, as you mentioned in the introduction. Um, and in your paper, you note several reasons for why this might be. Um, can you go into those and whether or not you think that this your study is more representative of reality or has a greater external validity than what has been published previously? So like I mentioned, I, I think part of it may just be that our training simply wasn't adequate enough for the average eMERGE doc. Um, average eMERGE doc who is comfortable doing a fast may not necessarily feel comfortable doing an ocular uh, ultrasound scan after uh, just a one-hour didactic and uh, one supervised scan. So that's one factor. The other factor is the f fact that we sort of opened up the participation to a really large group of emergency physicians, and they all had really varied levels of both ultrasound experience and more specifically ocular ultrasound experience. I think any time with these sorts of ultrasound studies, uh, when you repeat these studies with larger numbers of clinicians with varying levels of experience, you're going to get a bit of a mixed bag with regards to accuracy. Absolutely. And Actually, like if you look at sort of some of the newer literature that's come out in the past couple of years, I think we're probably more in line with what's re what's sort of representative of reality uh, rather than the Vrabelic minute analysis I talked about initially. So like I know there's a study that was published by Jacobson in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2016, 
and they cited a sensitivity of 91% for retinal detachment. So they were, mm -hmm. they did a retrospective study. So 91% is certainly less than hundred percent. And more recently, there was another study published by Baker in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine this year, 2018. And they showed a bunch of images to, I think about 15 emergency physicians and they were only about 75% accurate for identifying retinal detachment. So hmm. those studies kind of seem to suggest that our study actually isn't an outlier. So if you were going to make any changes to your study design, uh, well, would you? And uh, if so, what would they be? Uh, yeah, there are definitely some changes I would have made. I would have mandated that... Um, all of the scans actually be recorded. Hmm. Um, this was sort of a, a huge kind of debate that we had amongst our, our research group. It, at the end of the day, I actually pushed to not have people uh, record clips because I was afraid that that would add an additional barrier. Essentially, it would add a barrier that uh, would be hard for people to kind of enroll patients into the study, right? Like the more, more things that you ask people to do, the less likely they are to do it. Because I think in Emerge by Our Nature, we're sort of all about doing the bare minimum <laughs> and getting away with it, right? So, you know, now, now, now you start asking people to punch in patient information and MRNs and saving clips and whatnot. And they're doing a, a process that they're not familiar with. So then it's going to be harder to enroll patients. So I was afraid that we were going to have a lot of difficulty enrolling patients if I did that. But in retrospect, I think it would actually been super helpful for us uh, in kind of uh, sort of two ways. Um, well, first of all, I would have been able to ensure that the scans in general were just both adequate and accurate. Right. Um, and secondly, I could have been a bit more definitive in terms of explaining why the false positives and why the false negatives occurred or what the mistakes and what the pitfalls were that led to those um, determinations. So I, I think that would have definitely that would have definitely made our study more robust and would have probably improved the quality of the study. Uh, so that's definitely one change I would have made uh, in on reflection. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the other change I probably would have made is I, I would have probably blinded the on-call ophthalmology resident to the results of the point of care ultrasound scan, because mm -hmm. obviously that introduces some element of referral bias for subsequent referral onto the retina specialist. That makes sense. Um, so what would you like to see come next? Um, what do you think needs to be done next on this topic? You know, it's hard to say. I, I think that one thing that would be helpful is to establish really what the learning curve would be um, in terms of ocular point of care ultrasound uh, and identifying actual pathology. So for example, like I mentioned before, our one hour lecture and one supervised scan probably wasn't adequate. So should a training program involve five supervised scans or 10 or 50, trying to establish this type of a learning curve, plotting competence versus number of scans would be hugely helpful for educators. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing that would be useful. Um, if you wanted to design a study to really convince clinicians to use ocular ultrasound, you could also do a study where you compare emergency physician accuracy with direct ophthalmoscopy, which I think is a totally dying skill for the average eMERGE doc out there, mm -hmm. to uh, emergency physician accuracy with point of care ultrasound. That would be interesting. That might help in terms 
of an argument for convincing the average eMERGE doc to, to use ultrasound rather than to not. Right. I think more patient-oriented outcome studies would be ideal, but they're exceedingly difficult to actually carry out, right? Yeah. So, like for example, does the use of point-of-care ultrasound actually lead to improvements in things like, say, visual functioning or visual acuity of the patient or the number of treatments that they needed or number of complications that they had, that sort of thing. I, I don't really think in realistically we're going to see these types of studies, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to say about the paper? You know, I, I think that obviously it's a little bit disappointing that we didn't hit anywhere close to 100% sensitivity. But at the end of the day, though, 75% isn't horrible either. Um, I think that we sh certainly shouldn't throw away ocular ultrasound completely uh, because it can certainly help us yeah, at least risk stratify our patients. And it really depends on what sort of environment you work in too, right? If you have easy access to ophthalmology assessment, then maybe it's not as important. But you know, if you're in a setting where it's more difficult to get that access, then uh, I think a tool like this is certainly something to add to your armamentarium. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for the work that you've done. And we look forward to seeing more from you in the future. Oh, no. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Don't forget to hit the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa. Thanks again for listening.